0: Welcome to the Proud To Be Staffs podcast. It's the Staffordshire University podcast where we talk to alumni and honorary doctors of the university. Now, our guest today is both of those things. I'm going to hand you over to him so that he can introduce himself.
1: Thank you. So I'm, I'm Jamie Smith. Very, very proud to be an honoree alumni of Staffordshire University. Three times, actually, I, I, was, I was told at the latest uh, ceremony. So as the vice chancellor said, I've been given the third degree. Came here originally to do, well, a long time ago now. Back in 1991, I think, 92, did a, a literature degree uh, many years ago back then, and then came back many years later to do a, a master's degree as well. And then obviously I was absolutely humbled to receive the honorary doctorate as well, which I'm still processing. It was a surreal and quite magical day. So I'm deeply grateful for that.
0: And you've worked here too, haven't you? So you've been staffed, you've been a student here, you're I've a graduate I've done the whole here. journey. I've done, I've done
1: everything, the whole journey. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have some of the happiest, I mean, I just have happy memories of, of working here and. I, I benefited by being surrounded by the sort of extraordinary leaders who, were just, who believed in people and created a sort of safe culture of trust where you could innovate as well. So even at a really young age, and it feels like a long time ago to me now, I was able to test things, take, take a few risks. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing at all or with any of it, but I was learning tremendously fast at the time because of the culture. And I think that's something that's very, very special about this, this organization uh, that I've seen from many different perspectives. Because of course, these days I see it from an external business and employer perspective. And I look at the university and whenever I'm here, it does have a a culture, which is very, very special. Uh, In fact, I said to a prospective student just yesterday, who's thinking of coming here to do a master's degree, that she'd been to talk to a few universities and she was asking me about Staffordshire. And I said that one of the things that she'll always feel here is that it's open and welcoming and she will feel uh, the culture is distinctively friendly and welcoming. That, That was something that I noticed many, many years ago when I was first a student here, but yeah, worked here as well, done everything, uh, which, which was just amazing what I learned, you know, I was involved in every, every aspect really of university life. So uh, many happy memories from that and, and learned an awful lot. It's what first sort of was my first job in technology really as well, because I was working originally sort of in what back then was called the MIS department. I don't know if it's still called Management Information Services, I have no idea, but that's kind of where I started
0: and you said the university actually has helped you on the path you perhaps wouldn't be where you are business wise today without oh, the
1: university. in more ways than i can i can express really and i'm a bit of a poster boy for education and its benefits to transform your life chances in some ways and so i'm almost a bit like a an advert for education in that sense because i mean my my life chances before i came here were would have been very very different and were very different i did different jobs i mean i I had some of, uh, well, I've done everything from being, and I'm not joking, I was a tomato picker, <laughs> and I really was. I lasted, I think, a day on that when I realized I should have brought some drinks to work in a greenhouse, and it was about 100 <laughs> degrees. Uh, I worked in a, a bank briefly, and I worked in an engineering firm, and I realized that I wasn't, wasn't happy, you know, and I'm not the sort of person to put up with not being happy for very long, usually yes. about an hour, and then I think, uh, life's too short, Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to do this. So I thought, well, what's my best route to transform uh my life chances and no one in my family had ever been to education uh, into uh, higher education and none of my friends or networks had either and so it was completely alien to me it was a big scary thing a university seemed like a massive place to me and very complex but going back to my previous point i went to to a few interviews to different universities and i won't name the others but when i came to staffordshire i remember it was actually in this building bizarrely uh more than 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, I was interviewed by this gentleman who's a lecturer here. And I was just blown away by how accessible the people were, how open and how like me they were and how I could just relate to them. They're friendly, open, normal people and not what I'd experienced elsewhere, where there was a real sense of, uh, I don't know whether elitism is the right word, but there was a sort of barrier there where I felt like, oh, these, this isn't my tribe. I don't feel like I belong here. But I came to Staffordshire and I just instantly felt at home. Like I was supposed to be here and that I could work with these people and learn from these brilliant people and I had a lot to learn. And so, yeah, I ended up uh, coming here. And since then, to answer your question, yeah, the the way it's transformed my life. I mean, it's not just the course. It's not just what you learn on the course and all the modules and everything else and all the technical side of doing a course or a degree or, or an apprenticeship or whatever course you choose. It's, it's the people you meet and not just the people on your course, in terms of your peers, it's also the academic and the support staff and yes. all the other people around you, whether they work in student services or all the different departments. I've always been a people person, so I particularly benefited because I got to know those people. So rather than seeing people in a role, like that's their particular job, I would sort of see them in the wider sense and I'd ask them, I had a curiosity about people and I'd sort of say, well, what got you into this and who, who are you connected to and who do you know in the industry and things like that? And I gain so much from that. So I often say to young students that to definitely get to know the people in the university around them because and not see them just as a role. Yes. Because if you get to know them, all these other doors open up because they have all these networks and all these this fantastic uh, insights and experience and wisdom to share. And I think for students, that, that's something that's well worth uh, doing.
0: So it's says think about university being the experience and not necessarily the knowledge and the facts that you collect along the way.
1: Oh, 100%. 100% because... Uh, i mean our world is changing ever faster you know right now you know change is as slow as it's ever going to be and most people would think the world's changing quite fast now so it's a sobering thought to think that well this is as slow as change is going to be it's only going to get faster from this point forward and i think those wider things you pick up rather than the specific technical things on whatever course it is you might be doing that's great underpinning knowledge and that'll serve you well forever of course but i think what is most transformational about well when i look back on my time here it was all the other characteristics and uh, knowledge that you pick up and networks you pick up and, yes. and all the wider the wider aspects of it. I mean, there were some extraordinary people on the course, where, all the courses I've ever done here throughout my life. I've always been blessed to be on a on a, a course that i have surrounded by like brilliant people who became lifelong friends, you know. Like magnets,
0: I, mean, I guess, you, you draw them <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because well, you want one. <laughs> there are one. There
1: are literally people like when I did my first degree here, which was you know, decades ago now, I'm still connected to those people yes. and they're still friends of mine.
0: You wanted to be a teacher then, didn't you?
1: I did, yeah, originally. I was, it was in the era of when, you know, Robin Williams had d- done Dead Poets Society, and I thought that film was quite inspirational. You, it wanted a of, paid, you
0: wanted to see it didn't you? Yeah, day, I wanted that. You? I'm a bit rebellious, you <laughs> see. So I think I'm a bit
1: maverick, and I, I watched that and thought, yeah, that's the kind of thing I want to do, transform lives, and I want to get people standing on desks and rebelling. <laughs> and um, so I was let loose in a classroom briefly, and I, I, I had some experience with that, and I did love it. I absolutely loved it, and I'm in awe, in absolutely in awe of people who work in education and, and teachers. They, you know, everybody's collective future is in their hands, really, because those are the people that are going to be building our future. And so I don't think there's any job more important than, than edu- you know, people, everyone who works in education, not just the teaching staff, but everyone who makes it work, from the estate staff to the IT staff, to the student support services, to mentors and coaches and safeguarding people, the whole ecosystem you know, our collective future is literally in their hands, which is why it should be prized as the highest thing in society. So yeah, I, I, I was very much sort of going to go down that road. But then I got sort of sidetracked by getting ever more intrigued by people. Yes. And why I got I got intrigued by how people make decisions, and why some decisions work out well, and why the decisions don't work out so well. And that naturally led me down this road of I sort of subconsciously was also becoming a sort of natural entrepreneur without sort of really realizing it. I didn't set out on a mission to become a business person or anything like that. I just got really interested in certain stuff, which meant I started certain businesses and things. And and then I thought, you know, I I just was naturally sort of studying this. And that led me back some years later to do the MBA because I'd done my first degree in literature and thought, you know what, I'm more interested in sort of how our world of organizations runs. Mm -hmm. And what makes some successful and some less so and so i spent my whole life studying that really
0: And you say you chose not to be a teacher, but actually one of your real core businesses, and you've got a number of businesses, it is linked into education, isn't it? Oh,
1: 100%. Yeah. So uh, uh, the business I spend, uh, the day job, if you like, in C-Learning, where I'm the executive chairman, uh, working with Ian, the president, and a whole bunch of amazing people, that is totally focused on education. So that is, you see, the the reason I'm so passionate about that is it combines my two core passions of, you know, uh, education and technology being brought together for the greater good, so to speak. And I've always been interested in, in technology and uh, that empowers people to do more. And I think technology should be sort of simple to use and make your life better. Yes. But people should always be the focus, not the technology. And I think too much is the other way round often. But uh, yeah, I spend most of my time now, I have the, the ridiculous privilege, thanks to you know all the things I've benefited from over the years, from my education and networks I've developed. Um, I get to now have the ridiculous privilege of spending my day working with awesome people doing awesome things. And I, I often say I don't think I've had a job in decades because I don't think I have. It doesn't feel like that
0: because you love it.
1: Because... I love it. Yeah, I just, I, I can't wait for. Tomorrow, you know, I've never had, I can't remember having that feeling that I hear other people talk about when they say like on a Sunday, they're thinking, oh, the week ahead, Monday. And I just think, I can't wait for the week ahead and I'll never retire either. I don't get the, uh, and that's another thing, you know, uh, I don't really understand the concept of retirement and I think that's a privilege of what I do because if you love what you're doing, why would you want to stop doing that? You know, I can't imagine stopping doing what I do every day and I just love it. I have got a lot of things I still want to do. and. As long as I I love it, I'm going to just carry on. I don't ever imagine sort of the concept of retirement, really.
0: There's a temptation to say, you're really lucky, (laughs) but actually it's not luck, is it? You've made this happen, you had some Hmm. passions, you had some interests and you've carved your way Uh, to to this this position where you're actually doing something you really love, running businesses you you really care about.
1: Only to an extent, what I would say, I I, I never like this phrase that I sometimes, I don't hear it too often, but sometimes I hear people described as, you know, they're self-made or they've done certain things and that's a complete fallacy. There is no such thing as a self-made person. If you look back at when I first came to this university, I wasn't a rough diamond. I was just rough. There was no diamond, right? But I was lucky enough to be surrounded by support staff and teachers and amazing people who were willing to overlook my not small amount of shortcomings to open a lot of doors for me, invest in me, train me, and do lots of things that they stood to gain nothing from personally. They were just doing it because it was the right thing to do. And this is what's amazing about universities like this one, is that they invested in me when... It was, you know, they stood to gain nothing, really. And I've never forgotten that because it's those things and those networks and that, that process you go through when you go through university. And again, a lot of this is nothing to do with the actual course. A lot of the most extraordinary things that have happened to me in the last couple of decades were as a result of people I met when I came to this university, yes. quite literally. Uh, whether it was publishing a book that ended up on Amazon, whether it was even doing a TEDx talk once some years ago. All these things have a link back to Staffordshire University and the people I met as a result having come here originally to do a course. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a byproduct of that. So there is a bit of hard work involved and other things, and you've got to have a, a willingness to be, you know, you've got to find your passion and something that you want to do. And that, that's all sort of essential ingredients, but ultimately you still need to have that network of support and friends and allies and skills and places like staff university that that open those doors to you because otherwise none of those things would have happened.
0: but you also need the kind of enthusiasm and dynamism that you very clearly have I mean, you yeah. are mr optimistic <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, well i yeah I, I do well i i always yeah i always have been i I'm, i've always been profoundly aware of the passing of time and i I, I think even if we live to be a, a, a ripe old age, uh, that's going to go by in the blink of an eye. So I do wake up every morning and think, let's make the most of today. And, and I, But I've, I've benefited again from some extraordinary mentors. You know, I have got the most extraordinary group of mentors and coaches and friends, and I've still got people who are my coaches now and, and, you know, shape my thinking and things. And one thing I've learned in recent years that I probably would have liked to have learned a bit younger is to very much live and focus in the present moment as well and to focus on that. And um, I think if you do that, then your life's a lot richer as a result of it. And you're much more productive and happy and healthy as well. So I have a very privileged life these days, but I owe, I owe an awful lot of that to education, for sure.
0: Quite a humble background, didn't you? From Malcop originally,
1: is that right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up on the edge of a place called Malcop, which uh, I guess some people listening will, will know. Uh, very fond memories back then, but it was a very impoverished childhood. But it's funny, isn't it, when you look back. I mean, I look back now as a very privileged person, and especially when I look at the life that my kids have grown up in as a result of their parents having benefited from university education and things like that. And their situation couldn't be further removed from where I came from. The weird thing is, looking back, is that I think kids are very good at, uh, or at least I was very good at coping with things. And I think kids are, generally speaking, because you tend to think whatever situation you're in is normal, and that's just how things are. It's only later when you look back older and wiser, and you're aware of other contexts and things that you go, ooh, Maybe that wasn't the most normal childhood or the best childhood. So, but it was no fault of my, my mother. I mean, she, I was just raised by a, a single female parent, and she had a significant disability, and also she had trouble coping uh, with a number of aspects of life. But she was a lovely, amazing lady, and she, she loved her kids dearly, but she wasn't really equipped to sort of look after kids, really. Um, so our childhood, looking back, was a little bit more like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> um, now, I lo- I loved certain parts of this. Now, even though now, looking back, I would probably be blubbing at, at how miserable my childhood was if I had a replay of it. At the time, I didn't, didn't feel like that. I actually had certain privileges in a way, because like when other kids, were, my friends were getting called in at 9 o'clock at night, I could stay out all night doing whatever I wanted. And yeah. So I was a little bit left on my own devices, good and bad.
0: Gave you life skills. Uh, um... It did give me
1: life skills. <laughs> yeah, it's a miracle I'm still here, I think. But uh, yeah, I, I, so it was, it was difficult, and I experienced poverty. And I think uh, that's something that is... It stuck with me in a positive way because I decided that, uh, you know, I needed to change my life dramatically because I was in some poverty and I realized that the only way, literally the only way, unless you're born into privilege, which I certainly wasn't, the only way you're going to get into that privilege situation is education. There's no other way. Unless you win the lottery, and that's not going to happen for most people. So the only way you're going to do it is education. So So,
0: education transformed your life, and you're passionate that it can transform other people's too. Well,
1: 100%. I mean, I'm living proof of that. I mean, it's 100%. And I think the opportunities now are even greater, Yes. because I, I do think that we're living in the most exciting time in all of human history. Not least now, because we've got fabulous tools like the internet and AI and other things. And I know that there's lots of good and bad points to these tools, and you know, there's lots of different perspectives on it. But ultimately, from an opportunity point of view, we are definitely living in the most exciting time in all of human history. And it's just getting more exciting with AI and other tools, uh, other platforms we now have. And I know the university, of course, is at the forefront of a a lot of this, whether it's around video games or whether it's around cybersecurity and all those sort of aspects of digital, the uh, Staff University, of course, is very much at the forefront of that. And I think it's an incredibly exciting time.
0: Your businesses, of course, are working in those spheres, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they are. Yeah. So, um, you know, C-Learning is uh, very proud to be a partner of Google. And so we, uh, we work with all of Google's uh, ecosystem of technologies, and we're very familiar with how they're applying AI to make their platforms smarter and more impactful for the people using them. We're very, very focused on technologies that make life better. You know, there's a lot of very clever technologies out there, but if they're difficult to use and complicated, then you have to question, I think, why you'd want to use them. Yes. Whereas I think uh, if it's making your life better, that's what it should do. And it should all be about people. People should be at the center of everything and of design. So if you're designing an AI tool or something else, then you should really put the user and, and the person at the, at the center of your design philosophy and not just think, I've got a clever tool here or a sure. clever product. I think if we do that, then we'll we'll uh, we'll benefit.
0: Can we take you right back to your first job? Oh. Uh, you, you told me the story before, and I'd love to share it with people on the podcast, the, the job that you started, the little business that you set up yeah, when, when you nine. were nine. Yes, um, when you were nine. Let's just yeah. repeat that again, nine. Yeah. Uh, well,
1: uh, yeah, I know. It sounds like I was a little entrepreneur. It was more due to necessity, I should point out. So, yeah, I mentioned just earlier when we were chatting that um, born into a, a not a privileged situation, to say the least. So I did need to earn some money when I was about nine years old, just because we hadn't got food in the house properly and stuff like that. And also I, my mum couldn't afford to buy my school uniform and things like that. So I was thinking, you know, well, what can I do? And my options were somewhat limited. This is before the Internet, obviously. And I remember a free paper dropping through there. The door, and it had an advert in saying "Distributors wanted," and I didn't really know what a distributor was, but I think I thought it was a paperboy or paper girl, that that kind of thing. And there was a phone number, so I borrowed, I went round somebody else's house who got a phone and phoned up, and I said, "Yeah, I'll be a distributor." And they I said, well, one of your
0: best grown-up boys, yeah, best grown-up imagine. boys." Well, actually, actually,
1: I was, I was even worse, and I, I'm not advocating fibbing here, but I think I might have pretended to be my older brother because uh, I did say, "Yes, I have a car." <coughs> Yes. And and they said, well, we've got five rounds, as they called it. So I thought, oh, five paper rounds. I didn't realize we were talking at two different conversations because they meant five rounds of several thousand papers. And I was thinking five like paperboy rounds or whatever. So I had these uh, papers delivered to my grandparents' house at the time. And I remember coming home from school that day and my grandfather had uh, clearly been waiting. He was so angry because of what had happened. He was been waiting at the end of his garden for about an hour with his arms folded, which I can still <laughs> picture literally now in my mind as if it was yesterday. And I said, what's the matter? He said, uh, what's the matter? Look at the house. And when I went into his house, these lorries had delivered, I think about eight and a (laughs) half thousand newspapers or something, but they'd left these like runways through the house for my grandparents to navigate to essential services like the toilet and the kitchen. (laughs) And the rest of the house was about five foot deep in newspapers. And so this of course was a bit of a problem. I I, I was just amazed they even left them really. And my, uh, my grandfather knew it was something to do with me. And then the following day I thought, okay, I can't deliver those myself. So I went in and I rounded up all my friends and just said, how much pocket money do you get? And a couple of them said like nothing, you know, because this was not a, a wealthy time or place. And there was always a couple of slightly wealthier kids and they said, "Oh, I get 50 pence or 20 pence a week or whatever. And then there was one kid who had a pound a week, which was like a fortune. And so I said, well, I'll pay you five pounds a week. But you must deliver every single one of these papers. Well, five pounds back then to these kids was like a fortune. And I was still making, I think, about 40 pounds on top of that. And this was way back in the early 80s, right? (laughs) Yeah, this was way back in the 80s when, I mean, to put this into context, at the time, I think it was Margaret Thatcher's government. And I think they had a YTS program for adults at the time, for young adults. And I think they were paying about 27 pounds a week. And I was making double that at the age of nine. Yeah. So this was a good thing for me. Yes. yes. And my friends, uh, it was a good thing for them. And they delivered all the newspapers and everyone was a winner. And so I did that for years. And so, and then I built it up and yeah, it just, it just worked. So that was my, that was my first job. <laughs> and you
0: were buying your school uniform with that. You were putting food in the house.
1: Yeah, I used to buy food for my mother. I, I didn't just buy a school uniform. I oh, I, Looking back, this is one of those toe cringing things. Because, you know, I was like a young, you know, a very young boy. And I was, uh, no sense of style or fashion, but like. I remember thinking it would be really cool to buy this like trench coat, and I bought this like cashmere wool trench coat that I thought looked absolutely you know, awesome. <sighs> I must have looked like a ten-year-old Arthur Daley. You, <laughs> you know,
0: kind of were a ten-year-old um, Arthur yeah. Daley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I was, I was. I must have looked. I mean, God, God, God knows what my teachers thought of me and things, but yeah. And I used to save. But I remember the one thing that stayed with me from that time was the tremendously uh, empowering feeling of making your own money. Yes. And the sort of, not security, but the sort of, uh, sort of empowering, just feeling that gave you. Realizing that you could do your own thing, you could do it yourself, and you didn't need to rely on getting a job or that kind of thing. So that stayed with me forever. And in many ways, it was a great experience.
0: And that you've kind of replicated that a number of times through your life, haven't you? I mean, mm. well, we've spoken before about different um, things that sparked your entrepreneurialism, you know. Did you buy some comics? Tell, tell us oh, that yeah. story. Tell us about No, I've done loads
1: of things. Some worked out well, some failed spectacularly, and I think you learn from both. Um, so you don't ever really fail. You just have learning moments. And so, yeah, the comic thing was great. I mean, I just, that happened randomly as well again, you see. So I, I happened to be in a certain area. This is a few years later. And... Was, there was like a car boot sale thing on, and there was a box of comics there, and, and they were all Spider-Man comics, and I remember thinking, hmm, quite like Spider-Man, I wonder how much he, he wants, uh, how much are these, and, and he said 20 uh, pounds, and I thought he meant per comic, I was thinking, oh, that's a lot of money for per comic, and he said, the whole box, I said, oh, the whole box, oh, okay, so I, I bought this whole box, anyway, I didn't know at the time what I'd bought, and I got home, and this was literally just as the internet had arrived. And so the old dial-up internet, Um, many people listening won't know what I'm referring to. (laughs) And I did a little bit of research and I nearly fell off my chair because I found out that, uh, you know, the first comic I'd taken out was worth hundreds of pounds and there was a box full of them. And that box was worth probably about £30,000. And uh, it got me started because I thought, there's a business here. Yes. I could sell these to other people interested in them potentially and then buy other comics and build up an even bigger collection. But it cost me nothing because it's been paid for through the profits of what I'm doing. So I effectively um, did that. It turned out there was quite a big audience globally for people who wanted those collectible comics. And I, I, I built that up to uh, something quite significant. But I didn't stay doing it because I felt that I could clearly see what was happening is that I was one of the first people to be doing that. on. I was the first person I knew to be on eBay, for example. Yeah. And this was back at a time remember, that you know many people perhaps won't remember or, or you know, weren't around then. But when the internet first came along, especially in the UK, a lot of people were very fearful of it and certainly wouldn't have used their credit card to buy something online. Hard to imagine now, of course, because we're the number one shopper in Europe on Amazon, you know, uh, in this country. But um, back then, people were very reluctant to use their credit cards online and things. So most of my customers were actually not in the UK. They were in America and places like that. The strange thing was that these were American comics. So they come from America, come to the UK, and I was signing them back for a huge profit to Americans, which is a slightly strange thing. but. Yeah, I, I love doing that, and I built up many friends in that industry that I've still got to this day in the comic and collectors industry. I'm still involved in that, but now as a buyer, as a as a consumer, I go along as a member of the public now and buy all these things. You've stuff.
0: got an eye for an opportunity, haven't you? Yeah. But, but using that for the good, <laughs> whether yeah, that's yeah. actually improving, transforming your own life or improving, transforming other people's.
1: Yeah, I, I, well, I'm I'm a definitely a, a, a sort of a opportunist, I suppose, to use that that sort of that, phrase. That doesn't um, have to be a negative, though, um, does it? I mean, uh, no, it's no, it's making the most of whatever. You see, the thing is, I've always thought that you know, two people can walk down the same corridor. One person can just walk down a corridor, and another person can see five opportunities walking down that corridor. Yes, and five doors open. It is a perspective and a philosophy on life. But again, it's in everyone. It just it's down to coaching and mentorship and the people you're exposed to. Like when I first came here. All the people, you know, so many people I met at the Stafford University, but almost accidentally, it wasn't part of a design or a plan, but I was exposed to people who were naturally very entrepreneurial and creative yes, and would see the world differently. And that's, that stays with you. If you surround yourself with people who who know a lot of things that you don't, you will float upwards. And I think that's true of any situation in life and it it works the other way as well if you surround yourself with people who are negative influence you will float downwards
0: yes yes but
1: if you you know just make sure that you surround yourself with as many people who you can learn from and you can learn from most people i mean everybody knows something you don't as they say then you float upwards and i think of course universities are like an epicenter of that because You know, you could just walk around here, like in these buildings I'm in now today, and there are just brilliant people within every 10 feet that you walk. Mm -hmm. And so it's like I, I was in the cafe earlier and I sat down and I was just absorbing the conversations and listening to some of the most brilliant conversations going on about really fascinating things. And who wouldn't love that, you know? So, yeah, I think if you surround yourself with bright people, you'll float upwards.
0: And perhaps you can become more. Well, you clearly already are this, but other people can become the sort of this. And perhaps other people float upwards. You know, you you can be that inspirer as well as the inspired.
1: Yeah. I, I well, I think enthusiasm is infectious. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're if you're passionate about what you're doing and you love what you're doing, that's kind of infectious. And I don't think you can fake that. I think we're all we all have some sort of built-in system that can detect when somebody's sort of faking something or not yeah. really being their authentic selves. But I think if you stick to what you're passionate about and what you're generally interested in, that becomes infectious. And I think that's partly. Why What's driven the commercial success of things like, for example, C-Learning is that whenever any of our clients come into contact with our people, we've built a tribe of people who are all very different. I mean, we're a very diverse bunch. We haven't just recruited a bunch of people like a big echo chamber. We're very conscious of not doing those, those sorts of things. We've built a diverse team, but there are common themes that run throughout the team a bit like a family. It's a group of people who are passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. And genuinely interested in what they're doing. So often in the evenings, like when nothing to do with clients, we'll be researching stuff and sharing things with each other and going, Have mm-hmm. you seen this? Have you done that? What do you think of this? And we're sharing things in a chat group all the time and at weekends and stuff. Well, if it was a job, you wouldn't be sharing stuff with your colleagues at weekends going, you know, Oh, look at this, isn't this brilliant? And that's what we do all the time.
0: The weekend isn't um, escaping from your job because your No, job isn't uh, a job, nothing is to it? escape from yeah. Yeah. No, there's yeah. literally
1: nothing to escape from. That's why I said earlier, yeah, it's 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 a lifestyle, and so there's nothing to escape from, and there isn't any of these normal concepts of a job or work for yes, me, which, yes. is, which for me is a great, great privilege, because I do meet a lot of people in my journey around uh, different places in the world and who are not too happy with their jobs, and um, my heart always sinks a little bit with that, and I think, well, change it then, because yeah. this isn't a rehearsal. You know, your life is not a rehearsal. This, this is it. So, you know, if you've won the intergalactic lottery by existing in the first place, then seize every second of it and cherish it. And enjoy the elementary things as well and live in the present moment. And if you do all those things, I sort of think success is almost like a byproduct of living like that. That's
0: mm. wonderful advice. Now, obviously, very um, recently, you were up in front of a, a whole King's Hall full of mm. <laughs> um, people who are graduating. Yeah. Tell me what your message is to, to people who are graduating, coming to the end of their degree, or, or even to starting a degree, people starting out in life.
1: Oh, gosh, my message is that the best is ahead. Yeah. Because it is. We are living in the most exciting time in all of human history for lots of reasons. Um, I'm well aware of all the challenges and that there are out there in the world. And of course, the popular media just bombards bad news 24-7 because that's its business model. But that isn't how the world is. That's just some very select people's representation of the world. The world is actually an amazing place full of brilliant people, and most of whom love each other and are very kind to each other and are amazing. So and when you combine that with the tools that we have now at our disposal, such as the internet, but also new new advancements in technology whether it's gaming technologies or ai or all these other exciting things i think we are living in the most exciting time in all of human history so my advice to younger people coming through now is to be open-minded and to be hopeful and also to be a little bit impatient about the future as well because it's not a rehearsal so so make it happen and just i think a thing that stops a lot of people from doing what they want to do is perceived fears most fears or things you're anxious about in life aren't real they're just your perception and most of them never happen they're not real so if you you can actually the good news of this is you can train yourself not to think like that every single successful person i've ever met and i mean successful in all senses not just don't think just commercial i mean successful as in healthy happy living a life they want has a particular thing they do that i've noticed that's different to a lot of other people and that's that they naturally by default, focus on the thing that they are thinking about going right.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And yeah. if I compare that to other people that tend to think about all the things that could go wrong with an idea they've got first, it stops them doing it. Whereas every single happy, healthy, productive, successful person I know has a sort of almost natural ability to focus on just assuming it's going to go right.
0: Have you always done that? Have no. You always done that absolutely no. not. So when you were nine and you started starting that no, <laughs> huge new No, totally not. I no. was an
1: anxious kid you are, and yeah. I would have worried a lot. This is partly, it stays with me to, even to this day. So I live well below my means in my in my lifestyle. So I could have lots of silly toys like sports cars and lots of flashy things. I don't, I may have, I have a very nice life, but I don't, I I live well below my means. And I think part of that stayed with me from sort of anxiety really of, of being in poverty and things when I was, I was younger. But uh, you can train yourself to do it. You see, how I got to be like this is goes back to the earlier part of the conversation with, I was lucky enough to meet extraordinary people who mentored and coached me. And I learned from them. And I sort of said, you know, well, how how have you become successful? How, how did that work for you? And what I learned from all of these amazing people who have done extraordinary things in their lives is that they had to train themselves. They had to learn and they they weren't just naturally. No one was born like, like there's a you know a wonderful lady I got to know many years ago. who At the time, was the vice president of IBM, and she happened to be very generous with her time, and got to know me at the time. And you know, she taught me a huge amount. And I realized from studying people like that, and listening and observing, that they've had to train and learn as well, and themselves. Know. So, you, but the good news is, you can train yourself to do that. So if you you can slowly over time nudge your mind to be trained, to be more disciplined on focusing what will go right, and nudge out the doubting thoughts in your mind, or any anxieties or fears you've got. And then eventually it becomes a more natural process. So you just naturally are wired that way. And and eventually you get to the point, if you do it enough, where you can only sort of think that way. And it does work. I mean, that's not to say everything goes right. I launch many different ventures of different kinds and some work and some don't. But when the ones don't, I learn. So either way you win. You either learn or it works out. And, you know, I'd see that as a victory either way
0: stocks and shares. Mm. I hope you don't mind me jumping off no, that. Sure. We haven't talked about that at all yet, but that's been a real success for you, hasn't it? You've written a book, haven't you, about, yeah. about stocks yeah, and Yeah, so a
1: number of years ago, I wrote a book called Making Money from Stocks and Shares. And, and, and I did that because going way back, I was always interested in business and people and why some companies succeed and why some don't. Again, it's all about people. And I think this gave me a huge advantage with investing because What I realized is that if you study the people and not just the balance sheet and the numbers and the products and the services and all the stuff that most investors look at, because investors are obsessed with data and maths, so they'll obsess about the balance sheet and the accounts and all of that. And that's very important, don't get me wrong, but I was applying equal attention to the people. You know, What were they paying themselves? How were they behaving? Were they behaving in the interest of themselves or the company? And how was that affecting the performance? So I studied all of that, and it got me massively into investing. So like way back in the stock market crash of 2007, when everybody else was selling shares, I was buying as many as I could literally afford. And that worked out really, really well. And the only reason a book got published, by the way, was, again, it goes back to Staffordshire University, because there was a, a wonderful lecturer who used to work in the business school here called Claire Capon, and she'd published several books herself. Sadly, she's no longer with us, but she was a remarkable lady and a very good friend. And uh, I was telling her about some notes I'd written about how I was doing what I was doing on the stock market at the time. And she said, oh, can I have a, have a read of those? I said, well, didn't intend it to be read by anybody else other than the family, because I'd written these notes for my family in the event of me killing over, which was part of my every day could be your last one, because <laughs> yes. even though yes. I was a younger man, I had no reason to believe I was going to kill over. I do live each day like that. So I thought, well, I'll write a guide for my family in case I drop dead. And then Claire read it. And then <laughs> for reasons I never really understand, you know, she came back a few weeks later with two publishing contracts for me and said, my publisher and this other publisher would be interested in this because it's different. It's not like an academic book. It's like written to be accessible for anyone yeah. on the street. You could hand this book to anyone and they'd be able to understand it and do what you do. And so that's that's what I did. And it got published. And I never, ever would have believed, and my late mother would never <laughs> believe that I'd have ended up having a book published on Amazon. But that was just a, another amazing thing. But a, another uncanny connection to the university and education yes. because... If I just tried to get a book published myself, it would never, ever have happened. That only happened as a result of the generosity of somebody else opening a door. And, and your uh,
0: excellent book.
1: Well, uh, excellence for other people to judge, it did well at the time. And um, although I think these days I'm probably more like the, uh, I think it's probably on reduction now. i a bit more like the J.R. Hartley fly fishing <laughs> uh, these days. But, but what the, the core points in the book are still true and they will be true as long as economics works the way it does. Because there's lots of fashions and fads in the world of investing and in, in business. And some of the, some of the skill, you know, at times is is it's not about being clever or anything like that or visionary. It's sometimes it's about avoiding doing silly things, yes. mistakes.
0: Is it emotional intelligence? Do you think?
1: Oh, huge! I think if you, the more you understand people, the more the world opens up to you in every aspect of life, business, personally and professionally. That's why my favorite, the most important business book I think I ever read is one that maybe some people would maybe uh, snigger out a little bit, but it was How to Win Friends and Influence People by uh, Dale Carnegie or Carnegie, or however you pronounce his surname. I've never been quite sure because Americans pronounce it different to the rest of Europe, it seems. But that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which you can pick up now for about 20 pence, by the way, on eBay or on Amazon, is one of the most important books I've ever read because he was a genius when it came to emotional intelligence, as you say, and understanding people. He probably understood people as much as anyone you could ever meet and he's one of the people that if i could have uh, dinner with like three people from any mm-hmm. point in history dale would be one of them
0: now i need to know who the others are
1: well uh <laughs> relates to ken robinson okay. uh would be the other and i suppose i better say caroline my wife is the third one <laughs> no, we, we, we need to talk about caroline
0: you yeah. met her here didn't you i
1: did Yet <laughs> another connection <laughs> oh gosh i do what would have happened to me if i'd never come to stash university again? um yeah i did meet my wife caroline here that was uh another you know, profoundly impactful thing of course so I wouldn't I, I yeah my whole family and stuff is a result of uh, being here so we were both working here I met Caroline Powerball of Energy and um yeah and 20 something years later she's still the first person that I want to share good and bad news with and we share the ups and downs and ups together with all of our business lives and everything else and yeah one of the reasons I one of the reasons I'd want to live forever really is to have more time with her it's not because i'm afraid of dying but i think if you're lucky enough to have extraordinary people in your life and you don't want to ever let it go you don't ever want to lose it and so that's why i uh, you know i would want to live forever not because of dying or anything. i'm not bothered about that at all but i think if you've been as lucky as i have to have extraordinary people in your life that bring love and joy and lots of other things and i've got amazing friends as well you know that's, that's hard to ever imagine letting that go well,
0: so. i think we need to bottle you to prescribe your positivity (laughs) oh you mean positive, not (laughs) violent. yeah Uh, caroline's very successful in her own right she she? is she's got a whole string of businesses that she runs well
1: yeah she's another maybe we get on for lots of reasons but she's a fellow sort of entrepreneur and uh, she worked in the university sector for many years as well so of course she's worked at a number of regional universities and across the west midlands actually and and of course like a lot of people who work in universities, it's, a, it's an immense privilege because they are, well, for me, a university represents the best of all of us, the best of everything. So I'm fiercely protective of universities because they are our best collective hope for the future. But yeah, Caroline was working at a university and when my company was growing rapidly a few years ago, we needed to grab as many talented people as we could. And I managed to persuade her to join Sea learning uh, which was initially in a part-time capacity, although she'll forget that now, <laughs> uh, because she's very successful at what she does. She heads up the marketing engagement side of Sea learning That's grown significantly from the role that she originally came in to do. But on top of that, she also launched uh, what initially was a hobby business. And that was the Pottery Cave over at Bishton Hall in, in Staffordshire, because she's a ceramic artist okay. uh, by nature, has always loved ceramics since she was a teenager. So, and she's never stopped doing it throughout her whole life. She has a gift for it and has always wanted to run a studio. She started off building up a community of classes and p- uh, potters doing stuff. And then when the opportunity came up to have a base at the stunning Bishton Hall in Staffordshire, it seemed too good to miss. So we acquired that. And long story short, I mean, I was, I I, I helped to get her set up and we got the business going together like we do with most things we do. And I said to Caroline at the time, look, if it, if it breaks even, then I'm happy, you know, that we've achieved something there. I didn't expect it to become as successful as it has, but now it's one of the most successful pottery studios in Staffordshire and is open pretty much seven days a week and most evenings as well. <laughs> so uh, she's grabbing people to help left, right and centre with that as well because she's got a number of big things she does. A very, very busy person, but a powerball of energy. And going back to what I was saying earlier, Caroline's one of those people as well that always focuses on what will go right. Yes, and yes. so it does. I mean, in theory, she shouldn't have been able to be successful running a pottery studio because there's lots of pottery studios and many of them, you know, may not be doing too well. Also, it can have a sort of slightly traditional perception, uh, but she sort of reinvented that and created the most fun, vibrant pottery studio that's absolutely thriving. And she's a great example of how, you know, people should never be put off of thinking, well, someone else is already doing that. It doesn't matter. If you bring your own style and flair to something and your own creativity and you think you can do it differently or better, do it. Most of the big companies that are super successful now that maybe didn't exist 20 years ago, they weren't the first to be doing, or you know, there was, there was lots of competition already there. Google are a classic example. Google was the ninth search engine to launch. People forget this. They were the ninth. And history's worked out rather well for them because they just did something a bit better and a bit different.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You've got two children. Uh, yeah. Do they have that drive as well? And, and
1: <coughs> yes, they they, they they do. So I've got two kids, daughter Charlotte and son Alex. So Charlotte's in her 20s now. She's another entrepreneur, so she's self-employed. She's done a number of different things. She's an absolutely courageous spirit. Uh, she worries me because I can't help it, you know, protective dad, because she's a bit like a, a young Laura Croft. She'll sort of decide. She, I mean, she came in a few weeks ago and said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to Indonesia backpacking. All right, who with? No one, just me. Okay, and off she went. Um, no real sort of itinerary as such. And, and then we get pictures of her like, you know, cleaning an elephant you know, somewhere in Asia somewhere. And I'm like, okay. My son, Alex, he's uh, 16 now, just about to uh, go on to college and then university probably. But he's, he many years ago started martial arts and he just had a gift for it. And so the coach came to us and said, uh, you know, I'm not just saying this. He's got, he could compete. He's he's got a remarkable. He's always been very sporty. Yeah. So he's very good at all sports, football and rugby and everything. But his particular gift is martial arts. And so I said, all right, run with it, do it. Long story short, he became one of the youngest black belt martial arts coaches in the country by the age of before he's even 15. Wow. And he now runs clubs at the age of 16 uh, in both Manchester and Stafford. And he will go on to have a very successful career doing something he loves in martial arts. So. That's the road he's going But he's going running
0: on. clubs, which, which kind of shows me that there's an entrepreneurial thread. There, there is. Oh,
1: he's already got a business plan to build up a national network of clubs. Uh, I mean, he, he, he's, he's much worse than I was. I mean, Caroline was laughing with me many years ago when he was only about seven or eight. And he came in to me one day and said, Dad, I want to run a theme park. I think we've just been to Walton Towers or something. Okay. And he came back in awe of Walton Towers and uh, he said, I want to run a theme park. I said, what do you mean, run? You mean you want to go to a theme park? He said, no, run. Talk me through the money and how it works. I said, well, first, you need 50 million pounds to build it. <laughs> and then I took him through, all well, how you pay tax. Anyway, I thought that would put him off. He went away and he started doing all these calculations. And he came back with how much you would have to make to pay the tax, to do all the other stuff, to pay the staff and logistics. He had an entire business plan for a theme park. He at sounds the incredible. age of seven. <laughs> yeah, he's he's probably, he's more entrepreneurial. You made that than, happen, you know. Uh, well, <laughs> well you Caroline. Maybe it amplifies over generations because yes. um, the kids are worse than, well, not worse, the kids are more entrepreneurial than we were at that yes, age, let's yes. put it that way, far more. And maybe that's just because of the environment they've grown up in or whatever, I don't know, because they're surrounded by people who've just started their own things and built their own companies and stuff. But... Yeah, but whether you're doing that or whether you're working for somebody else, I think if you find your tribe of people who are interested in things that you're interested in, you spend a lot of your life working, so to speak. So it makes sense for me to, to do something that you enjoy. Yes. And uh, I think if you you do that, you can't ask for more out of life, really, because I think happiness is a byproduct of that. I don't, think, I don't think people should pursue happiness as though it's an end in itself. It's not. It's a byproduct of finding your purpose and meaning in life. So you do something that you've got some purpose and, and meaning attached to it, and you tend to be a lot happier as a result. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think met a number of people who sort of almost think like they're pursuing happiness as an end goal, but it's not, it's a byproduct of doing something that has purpose and meaning for it. It
0: happens when you're not looking
1: for it. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's a good way to phrase it, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I, th- I think we're coming to the end of the podcast now. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Likewise. I feel like you've been prescribed <laughs> by the doctor. <laughs> I hope okay. people listening good to this medicine. feel as cheerful as yeah. I do in this podcast. <laughs>
1: no it's been absolute um privilege and an honor as always
0: and i'll just very briefly take you back to the name of the podcast proud to be staffs i can't think of many people more more proud to be involved with Staffordshire university than you
1: oh i am deeply proud to be staffs and i can't put into words how grateful i am really this university means more to me than i can put into words really but it is a remarkable special place and and i'd encourage anybody to experience it in any capacity no matter what capacity that is whether it's a short course training course or Uh, working here whatever it might be it's a place that stays with you forever and it's just an absolutely incredible place so i'm deeply deeply proud to to be here and to be part of this and thanks for the invitation thank you very much much. for being with
0: us today yeah thank you you've been listening to the proud to be staffs podcast the interview today is me that's jenny the production has been done by alex morley hewitt and the music was created by will davenport